How's everybody doing? Good. Glad to hear it. Take the world, uh, give me Jesus. What a, uh, a mantra that we should have on our hearts all the time. It, it's true. The more of the world you have, the less of Jesus, and the more of Jesus you have, the, the less of this world. Just pray. Lord God, uh, fill us with you today. Fill us with your heart, with your desire, with your, with your passion, Lord, that we could come away uh, today knowing more of you, uh, glorifying more of you and who you are in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Now, last week in our study through Romans, uh, we looked at chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, just two verses, and the title of the message was, The Relationship of the Law to Sin, Part 1. So you might wonder why the title of today's message is not The Relationship to the Law and Sin, Part 2. Usually, if there's a part one, that means there's a part two. Well, because last week, after the, I finished the sermon, uh, someone said to me, you know, I, I still don't fully understand this law stuff. And what I think he meant was, I, I, I still don't understand the purpose of the Old Testament law in the life of the New Testament Christian. Last week, we, we talked about Paul as a Pharisee and how this, this, uh, when this idea of covetousness hit him in the, in the face and he saw his own sin. The 10th the commandment revealed to him his sin. This came uh, true home to me this couple weeks ago. I was, uh, that I don't, I don't fully sometimes get the, the law and what it means and what it means to be a Old Test, the Old Testament law and the New Testament Christian and all of that. Um, I was talking to my daughter and I said, uh, so are you guys going to circumcise David, my grandson that she was at the time pregnant with, now has given birth to? And they said, uh, no. And I said, I said nothing because I'm smart enough to say nothing. But in my heart, there was this thing, what? You got a circum- circumcision. That's a thing we do, right? Us Christians. Not so. We'll talk a little bit more about that. I realized I realize, uh, in Romans, Paul writes about the law on many occasions. But that, but that I had never really explained to us, and sometimes to myself, how this Old Testament law applies to us. Last week I ended the message by looking at, at Romans 7.12, which says, So the law is holy... And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then I said, given that the law of God is holy and righteous and good, then we should know and study and understand and obey and apply God's law in our lives. But what did I mean by God's law? What law of God are we Christians to study and understand and obey and apply to our lives? Now, just so we're clear, the debate about this uh, question dates back all the way to the first century, early church. The book of Acts records meetings in Jerusalem to decide what Old Testament laws the new Gentile convert should obey. And this debate continues today. There are books written on this subject. There are some who believe that Christians should, should be living more in line with the Old Testament law, while others believe the Old Testament law has absolutely nothing to do with our lives as Christians. So today, I want to help us understand this issue. I want to, I want to uh, sort of build a foundation. 
We need to understand this issue if we're going to understand, continue to understand, maybe even understand some of what we've already seen in the book of Romans and understand what we're going to see as we go forward. But it's my prayer that we'll also be empowered uh, to understand in our own lives how to study and apply and obey the holy, righteous, and good commands, law of God the way God desires for us as New Testament believers to do. Okay? That's where we're headed. So let's begin by looking at the meaning of the law. When the New Testament writers talk about the law, what do they mean? There are several ways in which this word law is used in the New Testament. Sometimes it refers to law in general, even Roman, Jewish, other law can also refer to the whole, entire Old Testament, the law, or the law and the prophets, referring to the, the entire Old Testament. But most often, it refers to those first five books of the Old Testament, the, the Pentateuch, written by Moses. In these five books, well, well, really four of the five, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, not necessarily Genesis, Genesis is the beginning, uh, but it's in those four specifically that we find the commands of the Old Testament given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. And this is the meaning of the law that we're going to focus on today. Now we should also note that in the New Testament, this word law, and we've seen this, has both positive and negative meaning or or connotations. We saw it just in Romans chapter 7. In verse 6, Paul writes, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way in the written code. The law is pictured as holding us captive as the old way of the written code. The law is something we need to be released from by Christ. But in the same chapter, verse 12, as we've already read, Paul says the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. It doesn't sound necessarily like something we want to be set free from. This helps us to see why there might be confusion about the law in the life of a Christian. On the one hand, it's something to be released from, but on the other hand, it's holy and righteous and good. Commenting on the the various meanings of the word law, John Piper writes, whenever you read the word law in the New Testament, ask yourself, is this the Old Testament? Is it just talking about the entire Old Testament, the writings of Moses, or the legalistic distortion of Moses' teaching? In verse 6, it seems Paul is talking about the, the legalistic distortion of being under the law. We've talked about this. Believing in, that keeping the law will save you. This is what holds us captive. This is what we need to be released from by Christ. But in verse 12... Paul seems to be writing of the actual law given by God to Moses. Law that shows us God's will. Law, law, law that reveals sin, as we saw last week, and, and shows us our need for salvation through Jesus Christ. Law that is holy and righteous and good. And that's the law that we Christians need to understand, obey, and apply to our lives. Now, if you've ever read through the Bible, it's not long before you encounter the law, right? You may breeze through Genesis. You may get through about half of Exodus. But as you come to the second half of Exodus and then into Leviticus, you start to get bogged down, right? In the hundreds of laws that you encounter. 
some of which are, are, are no-brainers, right? They're perfectly reasonable. We should obey these laws. Some are even current laws in our own culture. For example, in the Ten Commandments, uh, we find many of those. Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20, repeated in Deuteronomy 5. Most Christians would agree we should obey the Ten Commandments. Well, at least nine of them. That Sabbath one is a little fuzzy, right? And it's not just the Ten Commandments that provide clear direction for Christians. For example, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, we read, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is certainly a commandment we should seek to obey. A commandment repeated by Jesus and linked to the greatest commandment, which Jesus says, and that's in the Old Testament law also, that to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength. So there are certainly parts of the Old Testament law that we New Testament Christians should obey. But then there are some pretty obscure laws, right? In Leviticus 19.19, right after the command to love your neighbor as yourself, the law says, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your fields with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear garment or cloth made of two kinds of materials. What? Okay, what do we do with that? Or what about Exodus 34, 26? It begins, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. Well, that, that sounds good. That sounds like a good uh, principle in the area of giving. Give of your first fruits. We've all heard that. But it's followed by, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Okay. This and many other laws kind of sound foreign to us. We don't quite... Well, we don't even know why they're saying that. We don't boil goats. And even if we did, I don't know if we'd consider boiling them in their mother's milk. Most of us do not sew our own clothes or plan our own food. So, so how do we understand our Christian obligation towards these laws? How do we know which, if any laws, apply to us? Well, one of the most important concepts for understanding and applying Scripture to our lives is that you must examine it, the Scripture, the passage, the verse, the book, in the context in which it was written. As one of my Bible professors would often say, context is king. Context rules over all. When reading the Bible, you must ask yourself, when and to whom and why was this book or this chapter or this verse written? And so, we, we must understand the context of the law. Let's think about when and why and to whom the law was written. It was given by Moses, excuse me, is given to God. No, <laughs> let's reverse those. It was given by God to Moses uh, for the children of Israel upon their exodus from Egypt. Remember, you've seen the movie, Charlton Heston goes up to the mountain, it's really cloudy and God gives him the law, the Ten Commandments, but he gives him a lot more than the Ten Commandments as well. It was given to establish the laws that would govern uh, this people of Israel, this nation, in the land of Canaan as they were to head for the land. A nation that was to represent God among the surrounding nations. The law would mark Israel as a distinct and separate people from all other nations. We see this emphasized again and again throughout the... It's repeated over and over. Just one example, Leviticus 20, 
24 and 26, we read, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beasts from the unclean and the unclean birds from the clean. You shall not make yourself detestable by beasts or by birds or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart to you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. The nation Israel was to be a different set apart, sanctified, if you will, uh, people from the world and to the Lord. And it was the law of God that would provide this, the boundaries and the direction that would govern them as a nation and set them apart as a people. The governing aspects uh, uh, of the law are seen in the many laws regarding land and property and dealing with I- individuals within the nation, laws regarding what you do when you kill your neighbor's ox, or how to handle disputes over land, or how to treat foreigners who live in your land. And the separateness is specifically seen in the various, as we've seen just in these verses, ceremonial and dietary aspects of the law. These laws made made them different and were designed to keep them set apart from the pagan nations that they were surrounded by. So if Joe Philistine invited you over to dinner, you just couldn't go because he might be serving pork chops, right? So that's the context in which the law is given. It was given to govern a nation and to separate a people. So what does this context mean for Christians when we look at the law? Because we're not part of the nation Israel, and we're not to be separated from the nations in the same way that they were. Yes, we are to be sanctified, holy, and set apart for God, but we are to be externally going to the nations, reaching out and identifying with the peoples of the world. We're called to go and eat with the modern-day Philistines. John Piper writes, With the coming of Christ, dramatic changes take place in the way God governs His people because we are no longer a political, ethnic people like the Jews were, but a global people from every tribe and language and ethnicity and race. And this means some dramatic changes regarding the application of the Old Testament law. So let's look at some examples of this. How the New Testament addresses and even changes uh, three key Laws in the Old Testament. Let's examine the New Testament's treatment of the law. And let's begin with what I referred to uh, in my, my feelings even, uh, this law of circumcision, the circumcision law. Circumcision uh, was established uh, by God, not with Moses, not with the children of Israel, but with Abraham, even prior to the law. But it was reiterated, it was uh, established in a way in the law. Exodus 12.3, and on the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised. Circumcised marked a Jewish male as entering into the, a covenant, becoming part of this covenant people, the Jews. It was the key mark of separation between Jews and Gentiles. And it was so important to the Mosaic law that it caused great conflict in the first, uh, in, in the, in the first century, in the early church. Historically and biblically, to be a Jew necessitated circumcision according to the law. What then were Christians to do? This question resulted in the first church council in Jerusalem. 
the apostles and others gathered in response to the claim of some teachers that unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, Acts 15.1, you cannot be saved. But in that council, based on the fact that God had bestowed His grace, God had, had drawn Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles to Himself, the apostles determined that circumcision was no longer binding upon the people of God. Paul, a representative at that first council, wrote he wrote much about circumcision. For example, Galatians 5.6, he wrote, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through the law. And remember, this was, a, uh, this was the mark of what it meant to be a Jew. And this is changing for Paul and the other apostles inspired by the Spirit of God. Circumcision was no longer essential for the people of God. Instead, it was recognized as only a shadow, pointing to the spiritual reality of, of having a circumcised heart. And this is where we start to, to get to the, to the understanding. We'll flesh this out a little more. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2.28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not for the letter. The law's demand for physical circumcision was thus no longer a universal binding upon God's people. Because in Christ, this outward symbol was replaced by a better inner reality, a transformed heart. What matters now is not the removal of flesh, but the removal of a heart of stone. And that's not accomplished by the law. The law reveals your heart of stone. The heart of stone is uh, the heart of, of flesh is given through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice that the externals were being replaced by internals. So first, the New Testament sees the external law of circumcision as symbolic of God's internal work on the heart through Christ. Now let's look at the New Testament's treatment of, of the dietary law. Another major section of the law uh, uh, involves the distinction between clean and unclean foods. How does the New Testament apply such laws? Starting with Christ, in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And then Mark, in parentheses, puts, Thus he declared all foods clean. And in Acts 10, we have further evidence of this. Peter's given a vision from God. All kinds of unclean, maybe clean and unclean, but definitely unclean animals, reptiles, and birds are in his vision. And he is told by God to rise and kill and eat. At first, Peter objects. Peter was a good Jewish man. He had never eaten anything unclean, probably. And he says, I can't do this. No way. And God's response to his objection is not sympathy. I understand, Peter. He's probably, yeah, oh, take it step by step. He says, what God has made clean, do not call common or, or defiled or unclean. Now, the context of Peter's vision reveals much about why these dietary laws designed to separate Israel from the nations are now being changed. Acts chapter 10 marks a, a watershed moment in the, in the church, in the early church. Peter 
is proclaiming the gospel. He's in the midst of proclaiming the gospel for the first time to Gentiles, to Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and to his household. Through the gospel, God's kingdom is expanding. It's it's breaking barriers. It's going from the Jews into the Gentiles. The need for separation is being replaced by a need for inclusion. And therefore, those parts of the law designed to create a separate people are no longer in force in the church of Jesus Christ. This reality is not restricted to food, but to the laws that separate clean from unclean. Walls are broken down and laws abolished as Christ reconciled both Jews and Gentiles into one body through the cross. Paul makes this very clear. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14-16. through 16. Speaking of the uh, former division between Jews and Gentiles, he writes, For He, Christ Himself, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commands expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In Christ, there is no distinction between clean and unclean foods. In our eating and not eating, we are no longer ruled by the letter of the Mosaic Law. Because we, people, we are, we are people from, from many tribes and tongues and nations, and we're all called to be one in Jesus Christ. So that's the, period. So that's the, the dietary or the clean and unclean laws. The treatment there in the New Testament. And finally, let's look at how the New Testament treats uh, maybe the biggest one for some. The Sabbath law. The Sabbath keeping was absolutely essential in the Mosaic law. And breaking the Sabbath was actually punishable by uh, death. And since this command is, is one of the Ten Commandments, right? We might expect it to remain in place for New Testament Christians. But in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes... Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. So that goes back to the dietary as well. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow. They're just shadows of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. According to Paul, the Sabbath and other things were just shadows pointing to a substance set forth in Christ's Sabbath as a sign, points all the way back, not again, not to the law, but to creation as God uh, rested on the seventh day. And it points forward to the eternal rest that we'll have in Christ Jesus. But the explicit Sabbath regulations of the Mosaic Law were never intended as an eternally binding law on God's people. So should a, a Christian rest? Of course, yes. Is it wise to have an established pattern of rest? Yes. Are we bound to a particular day in which particular activities are prescribed or prohibited? No. The Sabbath is not a a burden, but rather an opportunity and a gift of God's grace to us. As Jesus said in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So we've seen three examples of how the New Testament treats the Old Testament law. We've seen why these rules no longer apply to us as Christians. But, but now I want us to see the foundational principle behind these changes in the law. 
I want us to understand the relationship between the gospel and the law. The new covenant and the old covenant, if you will. There's more to the changes in the Old Testament law than particular aspects of of no longer being a, a separate nation of people. So to understand the demands of the Mosaic law on the Christian today, we must examine the law through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ's coming marks this decisive break with the old covenant. And it brings in, it ushers in a new covenant. The old covenant of the law as opposed to the new covenant of the heart. Jesus relates His coming to the law. In in Matthew 5.17, He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Christ didn't merely set aside the law. He fulfilled the law perfectly. By living in perfect obedience to the law, Christ fulfilled it ultimately and finally. In His death and resurrection, He accomplished the demands of the law. And because of this, We, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, have been set free from the demands of the law. They're fulfilled. The Mosaic Law was not intended as a universal and eternal reflection of the will of God. It was identified, intended for a particular time, a particular place, and a particular people. In Christ, it's no longer binding. Abel and Noah and Abraham and many others were declared righteous before the law was given. Moses and Joshua and David and the prophets and others who were subject to the law, but were never declared righteous because of their obedience to the law. They were declared righteous because of their faith in the promises of God. And now we experience the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of the promises of God in Christ. As Paul says in Romans 10.4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Think about that for a second. The word translated end can also mean goal. And Paul probably uh, had both nuances of, of this word intended. As New Testament scholar Thomas Shearer noted, Christ is the goal to which the law points. And when the goal is reached, the law also comes to an end. This truth is seen throughout Paul's writings. Once, one clear example comes in Galatians. Actually, the whole book of Galatians would, would do it. But uh, Galatians 3, 23-26, where he says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Christ is the end of the law. And those who come to Christ in faith are no longer subject to its legal demands. Our righteousness comes not from works of the law, but from faith in the Son of God who's loved us and given Himself for us. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, including Christ's fulfillment of every aspect of the law that releases us from the entire law. The entire law. Not just the obscure commandments about boiling goats in mother's milks or not planting this seed with with that seed. Not just the dietary laws or the law of circumcision or the Sabbath laws. We are released from the entire law of 
the Old Testament, including, it's getting dangerous now, the Ten Commandments, released, do not apply to you. And some might think, uh uh-oh, if Christ fulfilled the law, I've been released from the law, then I no longer need to obey the law. Stealing, adultery, even murder, right? Everything is permissible to me. You see, that's why Paul is writing in Romans 6 and Romans 7 because of that false assumption. We've seen it. He said in Romans 6.15, what then? I mean, we've been released from the law. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Why? Well, in Romans 6, we saw Paul emphasize the fact that we are not to continue in our old sinful ways because, we, because of who we are in Christ Jesus. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer under the law. We're no longer married to the law, but instead we're under grace. We're slaves to God and we're married to Christ. Therefore, we, we cannot and we must not continue in sin. He never appealed to the Old Testament law. He appealed to our relationship to Christ, to who we are in Christ, to our identity in Christ should keep us from sin. Now I want to look at it from a slightly different angle this morning. We know that that because we're in Christ and under grace, we are not to continue in our sin. But if the law has been fulfilled by Christ, if the Old Testament law does not apply to us, then what does it mean to sin or not to sin? If the law no longer applies, then who's to say what is sin and and what is not sin? And this is where we we see when and how the Old Testament law applies to the Christian. This is where we see that we are no longer bound by the Old Testament law, but instead we are under grace, slaves to God, married to Christ, and we're bound to a much higher law. And by bound, I do not mean that we must keep this law to earn salvation, By bound, I mean we must keep this law because we've received salvation by grace through faith. And what is the law that binds us as believers? It's the higher and greater and much more demanding internal law. It's the law of love. We see this law, if you will, presented throughout the New Testament. Just a few examples. Galatians 5, Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Because our minds might go there. Free. Set free from the law. Now I can do what... Don't do that. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in, in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13 we read, Owe no man anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And when Christ is asked about the the greatest commandment, he responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. The law is now uh, summarized by this internal feeling, this heart transformation of love, of love for God and of love for other people, and, and the external action that this love produces. That's the summary of the law. So, so, so now when asked, should I do this or, or not do that? Should I do this command? Should I obey this? The answer is not dependent on whether the doing of it or the not doing of it is in the Old Testament law. The answer is dependent on whether the doing or the not doing is godly and loving. Think about how this applies to some of the Old Testament commandments. Expanding on what Paul just just wrote in, well, he didn't just write it, what we just read in Romans 13. If you love God, you will not worship other gods. First commandment, right? If you love God, you will not take His name in vain. If you love God, you will love others who are made in His image. If you love others, you will not murder them or commit adultery with or against them or covet their possessions or gossip or oppress or objectify or lie to them. If you love others, you will serve them and you will lay down your life for them. Jesus said, this isn't in your notes, I was just thinking about this this morning. Jesus said in, in, in John thirteen thirty four, a new commandment. You've been released from this old commandment, these old commands, but I'm giving you a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the old commandment included uh, this love your neighbor as yourself, right? So that was a, a pretty... A hard thing, in a sense. How do I love others like I love me? But, but now, Jesus is taking it up a notch. You're, how you love yourself isn't good enough. You have to love people like I loved you and gave myself for you. A new commandment of love. Christ's death and resurrection and His fulfillment of the law does not diminish in any way our responsibilities, but instead it fulfills them with the true intent of the law, uh, that of love. And so let's return to the question that, that got this whole thing started. What, what law of God are we Christians to study and understand and obey? And I hope the answer is clearer now. As believers, we are completely freed from the Old Testament law. But we are bound by the law of love. And now, when we go to the Word of God, the Old Testament, His law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so on, we go there not for the purpose of finding every possible rule God has has given that God gave to govern a nation and to separate a people. We read it looking for God's heart. We read it looking for God's desires because it's God's Word and we love God. We look for and we seek to apply how all of His Word, including the law, teaches us to love Him and to love others. 
We read it knowing it has principles and and moral guidance that still applies to us today. And we read it in the context in which it was written. Knowing it was written to govern and set apart a people. Knowing that, that we are to be set apart, but in a different way. We're not to be set apart from the nations. We're to be set apart for the work of Jesus Christ. We're called We're a people called and commissioned to go to the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Called to take the the love of Christ into our world. So yes, as Paul says in Romans 7.12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And for the Christian, that means we, understanding the context of the law and guided by the law of love for God, and for other people, that we must continue to seek and obey the holy, righteous law of God. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray and I thank you for your law. I thank you that of all it reveals. And I thank you that we've been set free from it. But, but I, I, I thank you also that you've given us this higher law. And you've given us your word that, that helps us see what the law of love means for us. Lord, I pray that you would give us new vigor, new uh, motivation to go to your word, including your law, to seek out your will and your way, to seek out how you guide and direct us to to love you and, and to love others. In Christ's name, amen. Stand with us.